Worldwide, cardiovascular disease affects the lives of hundreds of millions. Dedicated cardio nerds everywhere are working hard to fight this global epidemic. These are their stories. Hey everyone, welcome to the show. We're about to get down and nerdy with some great cardiology. This is Dan Ambinder, third year cardiology fellow. And this is Amit Goyle, second year cardiology fellow. I can't wait to dive into a great case, cardio nerd style. Guys, today we are honored to host Dr. Heather Kagan, internal medicine par excellence resident at the Johns Hopkins <laughs> Hospital, who will be calling in with quite an instructive case on aortic stenosis. We will use this discussion to review etiologies, presentation, staging, evaluation, and the management of aortic stenosis. Guys, I'm so excited for Heather to join us today. Heather completed her undergraduate studies in economics, art, and chemistry at the University of North Carolina, Chapel Hill. Boy, I just did one major. She went on for her post program for medical sciences at Temple University, who were lucky to keep her as a medical student. As a medical student, she continued to create and didn't ignore her passion for the arts. Her poem, titled Mental, was featured in the school magazine, and two of her anatomical drawings were shown at the Frank Netter Symposium in Philadelphia. She joined the Ulster Medical Residency at Johns Hopkins in 2018, when I had the privilege of serving as her chief resident. I've gained so much from her compassion towards others and nuanced critical thinking when it came to patient care. Oh my God, Heather, you are so accomplished. I feel like I need to give you my cardiology spot right now. <laughs> Take, <laughs> welcome to the <laughs> Please don't. <laughs> they need you. <laughs> all right, in all seriousness, uh, Heather's input was so amazing during our first episode of recording that we were just like, you need to become a bona fide cardio nerd. Woohoo! Woo! Well, <laughs> well, thank you guys so much for the extremely generous introduction and very warm welcome. I'm honored to join the Cardio Nerds team. Let's dive into today's case. All right, so excited to get started. But before we do, team, just remember that this podcast is not meant to be used for medical advice. The views expressed here do not reflect the opinions or policies of our employers. This case you're about to hear is 100% HIPAA compliant. Some details were changed to protect patient privacy, but out of respect to the patient, the rest is told exactly as occurred. What's up, cardio nerds? I was hoping to get your take on a patient who presented to clinic. She was complaining of new onset dyspnea on exertion. My friend, the cardio nerds are always at your service. Ooh la la, learning opportunity coming our way. Thanks, cardio nerds. I'm <laughs> loving the positive vibes. Okay, so my patient is a 57-year-old woman. She has a history of morbid obesity, hypertension, prediabetes, hyperlipidemia, and former smoking. She also has a family history of premature coronary artery disease, and she presented to clinic with worsening shortness of breath. She works as a housekeeper, and she had noticed insidious onset dyspnea on exertion over the past few months, but she says that it really got worse over the past two weeks. She was also having new orthopnea, paroxysmal nocturnal dyspnea, and some ankle edema. Her symptoms are really starting to impact her activities of daily living, and she can't keep up with her work anymore. Heather, excellent history, as always. So dyspnea can be a real problem, especially with her work, and the drastic change in her symptoms are very concerning. 
Let's go back and review the dyspnea schema as described by Brian Broderick from the Clinical Problem Solvers. It includes cardiac, pulmonary, and hematologic etiologies as the most common culprits, as well as states that increase the respiratory drive. We'll put a link in the show notes uh, for later viewing. But your history is quickly pointing us to a likely cardiac etiology with symptomatic evidence of fluid overload and probably new onset heart failure. Amit, ditto, 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 ditto. At this point, I'm at the edge of my seat waiting to hear more about the physical exam to interrogate for signs of decompensated heart failure and to assess for other organ systems as well as to look for clues for causes of heart failure. As Amit taught us in CP Salvers, Heart failure episode 48. There are so many causes of heart failure, but among the most common are ischemic, hypertensive, and valvular. So in the clinic, I would be looking for clues for each of these and chart biopsy for any prior ischemic or cardiac workup. Okay, so looking back, she did have an echo about two years ago. Uh, let me look at the report. So it showed normal biventricular function with an LV ejection fraction of 61%. Notably, she had aortic valve calcification with an aortic valve area of 1.1 centimeters squared. Her peak gradient was 60 millimeters of mercury. She had a mean gradient of 33 millimeters of mercury, and she had a peak velocity of 3.9 meters per second. I guess that puts her in the moderate aortic stenosis range, and she doesn't quite get to the severe cutoffs. That's absolutely right, Heather. There are a ton of numbers in cardiology, but luckily there are great resources for us to easily refer to like the ACC and EHA guidelines, the ESC guidelines, and, uh, and the ACC mobile app. But let's recall what qualifies as severe aortic stenosis. I like to remember these numbers, 1, 4, 40, and 64. That's aortic valve area less than one centimeter squared, peak velocity greater than four meters per second, mean gradient more than 40 millimeters of mercury, and peak gradient greater than 64 millimeters of mercury. Again, that's 1, 4, 40, and 64. The rest of the numbers are important, but because there's so many great resources, we can easily access these. The concepts are much more important to think through. In fact, if you're a visual learner, hop on over to www.cardionerds.com and check out the brilliant illustration created by Corrine Hamo to help follow along with the rest of the episode. Amit, I totally agree. 1, 4, 40, and 64 for valve area, peak velocity, mean, and peak gradients are awesome numbers to keep in mind for severe aortic stenosis. Initially, when I was a fledgling cardio nerd, <laughs> I had a lot of trouble understanding the importance of these parameters. Here's how I think about it now. In severe aortic stenosis, you have two issues going on, a structural problem and a hemodynamic consequence of that structural problem. So let's get into that a little bit more. The structural problem is that the aortic valve is tight. That old hunk of calcium rock pile just does not open up, and we can see that there's like limited valve motion on transthoracic echo. To quantify this leaflet limitation, we have to use aortic valve area, and we use a cutoff of one centimeter squared for severe. So the structural problem in aortic stenosis is the small valve area. Now, this structural problem leads to a very important hemodynamic consequence. That is the mean and peak gradients needed to get blood through that tight valve. Understanding gradients can be initially confusing, but stick with me here. In the normal heart, when the left ventricle starts to squeeze during systole, it generates a pressure that easily plops open the aortic valve when the pressure in the LV meets the pressure in the aorta. When this occurs, the LV and the aorta become so in love that they share the same pressure until the LV relaxes and the aortic valve closes and the romance between the LV and aorta abruptly ends until the next cardiac cycle. 
Therefore, in the normal situation, the systolic pressure in the LV is the same as the aortic pressure during systole, and there is no pressure gradient. However, in aortic stenosis, picture a soda bottle with a tiny pinhole through the cap. Now, during systole, when we're trying to squeeze soda out of the bottle, which is, in our example, the LV, you really need to generate a lot of pressure to get that small amount of volume out of the pinhole. This creates a massive pressure gradient between the LV and the aorta, which normally does not exist. If you think about it, this is a setup for a real problem. Because a peak gradient of 64 millimeters of mercury means that in order for your aortic pressure to be just 120 millimeters of mercury, aka a normal systolic blood pressure, the left ventricle pressure has to be 120 plus 64 millimeters of mercury, which is not math I'm prepared to do right now on this podcast. <laughs> okay, hold on. Let me bring out my calculator. Uh, 120 plus 64, 184 millimeters of mercury. <laughs> Wow, Dan, I never thought about it that way. That was awesome. So if we have a hypertensive patient, for example, who also has aortic stenosis with a systemic systolic blood pressure of 160 millimeters of mercury, then their left ventricle would have the burden of generating a systolic pressure of 160 plus 64 millimeters of mercury, aka 224 millimeters of mercury with each and every heartbeat. Wow, Heather, that's exactly right. Now, as Dan said, this gradient has a real hemodynamic consequence on the left ventricle, leading first to adaptive remodeling of the LV as the LV tries to deal with all the stress of this afterload. So remember that wall stress by the law of Laplace is proportional to the ventricular systolic pressure times the chamber radius, all divided by LV wall thickness. So in the numerator, you have pressure and radius, and in the denominator, you have wall thickness. How does the LV deal with the increased stress of increased pressure? Well, it increases wall thickness. This is really no different from Arnold Schwarzenegger's biceps after pumping iron all those years. With increasing wall thickness, there are more parallel muscle fibers and really more parallel sarcomere units to work together to get to that whopping systolic blood pressure so that each individual unit experiences less tension. This is also what happens in patients with systemic hypertension, which is really just increased pressure for the LV to pump against. This all sounds well and good. However, while these initial stages of compensatory concentric LV hypertrophy are adaptive in response to increased afterload, over time, these changes become maladaptive as fibrosis accumulates and the LV dilates with progressive eccentric hypertrophy. The LV ultimately fails with systolic dysfunction and downstream effects like functional MR, pulmonary hypertension, and RV dysfunction. This is why, when evaluating aortic stenosis on the echo, you should always also pay attention to the effects on the LV, concurrent valvular lesions, pulmonary pressures, and the right-sided chambers. Oh my god, exactly! And to round out our discussion, velocities are very important in the world of echo. When the valve is tight, the velocity of the blood going through the valve must increase to keep the flow through the left ventricular outflow tract and the aortic valve constant. Think of crimping the water hose with, while you're watering your plants. It turns out that a velocity obtained by Doppler magic can tell us what gradient is across the valve. This equation is not our focus today, but it's called the modified Bernoulli equation. If you square the velocity and multiply it by 4, i.e. 4v squared, you can derive the pressure gradients across the aortic valve. So as the blood shoots through that tight aortic valve and we clock a velocity of 4 meters per second using Doppler on echo, we can convert that to a peak gradient of 64 millimeters of mercury, which raises our concern that that poor 
ventricle is working way too hard. Wow, that was awesome. I totally get that. So, more structural problem is that the aortic valve area is tight. That leads to a hemodynamic consequence of an elevated pressure gradient, which then translates to increased wall stress on the left ventricle. This then leads to left ventricular remodeling over time and other gnarly long-term downstream consequences like left and right heart failure, pulmonary hypertension, and functional mitral regurgitation. And in terms of the utility of echo in this context, we don't measure pressure gradients directly, but rather we measure peak and mean velocities using Doppler signal technology through the aortic valve by ultrasound. And then we back calculate the mean and peak gradients with the Bernoulli equation. Well, technically, like a calculator does that for us. <laughs> <laughs> wow, Heather, spoken like a master echocardiographer. These are principles I just learned a few months ago. I know that was a deep dive into echo and aortic stenosis, but you know what? The physical exam in AS is also incredibly powerful. Heather, why don't you tell us about your physical exam findings? Sure. So on exam in the clinic, her vitals were normotensive with blood pressure 120 over 60, heart rate of 100, respirations of 12, she was satting 96% on room air, and she was overweight with a BMI of 53. She was breathing comfortably at rest. There was no jugular venous distension. She had a regular rhythm with a 3 out of 6 crescendo-decrescendo systolic murmur heard loudest at the right upper sternal border, and it radiated to the carotids bilaterally. Her lungs were clear to auscultation bilaterally, and her radial and dorsalis pedis pulses were 2 plus bilaterally. She did have mild ankle edema bilaterally as well. We got an EKG in the clinic, which showed normal sinus rhythm with first-degree AV delay, left ventricular hypertrophy, and left atrial enlargement. Heather, that's great. You're describing the classic outflow murmur of aortic stenosis. Now, I'm still refining my bedside grading of aortic stenosis, but here are four features that can moderately increase the likelihood that the aortic stenosis is severe. Number one, a delayed carotid upstroke. This is the TARDIS of parvus atardis. Number two, a sustained apical impulse. Number three, a late peaking murmur. And number four, absent or diminished S2 which happens because the valves are, and the leaflets are so calcified, they're inflexible, and so they just close with less vigor. Now, if your LV has a hard time generating outward flow due to a very tight valve, you can imagine that the flow will overall be diminished with a reduced stroke volume, and therefore you can expect a delay in flow from the apex to the carotid artery or from the brachial to the radial artery. Given this, the two best features that most strongly argue against a very severe stenosis are, number one, the absence of an apical carotid delay, and number two, the absence of a brachioradial delay. Guys, when it comes to physical exam, let me tell you a secret. Becoming a master clinician is not an autosomal dominant trait. It comes with years. I wish it was. Okay. <laughs> yeah. unless, well, unless we don't have it. Oh, that's true. <laughs> yeah, you want to make sure you have it, right? No, but really, it comes with years of deliberate practice and careful calibration. So here's the pro tip. Do your best with the initial physical exam, then obtain a diagnostic test. Here it's an echo, but hey, it could be a right heart cat or a CT or maybe a bilirubin level. If it shows, for example, severe aortic stenosis, go back and identify the bedside features to refine and recalibrate your senses for the next patient. Love it, love it, love it. Amit, you are a master clinician. Par excellence. Oh, Dan, you're making, you're making me blush, my man. Oh, shush it. Parvis okay. excellence. Parvis excellence. <laughs> <laughs> 
right. In all seriousness, solid work on the exam, Heather, and chart biopsying an incredible synthesis of our discussion so far. This is a consultant's dream come true. I'm definitely nerding out about the picture you're painting. The prior echo is key. And yes, she previously had less than severe aortic stenosis indicated by a valve area of less than one, peak velocity of less than four, and a mean gradient less than 40. Now, we have to keep other causes of her presentation in mind, especially coronary ischemia with her numerous risk factors. But aortic stenosis is sounding more and more like the culprit Importantly, many patients with aortic stenosis have coronary artery disease since the two share overlapping pathophysiology. Her AS has progressed over time, so let's review the stages of aortic stenosis. In cardiology, we're so fortunate to have ACC and AHA pumping out useful guidelines all the time, so I find it very helpful to update myself with the latest staging and treatment of common cardiovascular conditions. In fact, I'm going to whip out my handy-dandy CardioNerds aortic stenosis cheat sheet and review the disease staging right now. Stage A are those patients who are at risk for aortic stenosis, like they have aortic sclerosis or thickening of the aortic valve, or rheumatic heart disease, or prior radiation, but that do not actually have a hemodynamic problem or a, a valve that's tight enough to cause any issues. Stage B is the progressive stage, including both mild and moderate aortic stenosis. Stage C denotes asymptomatic severe aortic stenosis. This can be further broken down into a preserved ejection fraction, or stage C1, and those with reduced ejection fraction, or stage C2. And there are ramifications in terms of fixing the aortic valve. Stage D is now symptomatic severe aortic stenosis. That was so helpful. Thank you. So looking at her echo two years ago, she was stage B, the progressive stage with moderate AS. I've heard the term low flow, low gradient aortic stenosis before. Can you explain this a little bit and could this potentially be applicable to my patient? Phenomenal question. This doesn't really apply to our patient at this point, but it's worth a discussion. We can start thinking about low flow, low gradient aortic stenosis when we have a discordance between the, the valve area and the gradient. The definition of severe low-flow, low-gradient aortic stenosis is when we get an aortic valve area less than one centimeter squared, which is in the severe range, but the gradients and velocities are still in the moderate range. Before we dive into this concept, let's get a little bit nerdy and technical. <laughs> Measurement accuracy is key, and it's worthwhile remembering that the aortic valve area and the velocity and gradients are measured in different ways. The aortic valve area is derived from the continuity equation, which relies heavily on the left ventricular outflow tract diameter. A small measurement error can grossly underestimate the aortic valve area, whereas the peak velocity and gradients, as we talked about earlier, are derived from Doppler measurements through the aortic valve and may represent the true stenosis status of our patient. However, when all measurements are legit, we can start thinking about low-flow, low-gradient aortic stenosis. Now, low-flow, low-gradient aortic stenosis comes in two flavors. One, with a low ejection fraction, which is what we call low-flow, low-gradient aortic stenosis. Two is with a preserved ejection fraction, but with a low stroke volume. And we refer to those patients as paradoxical low-flow, low-gradient aortic stenosis. In both of these situations, the valve can be super tight. But if the ventricle cannot generate enough pressure, a gradient will not be as high as it would have been if the ventricle had a banging squeeze. <laughs> now, it's easy for all of us to appreciate how a ventricle with a low ejection fraction can lead to low flow, low gradient aortic stenosis by thinking about an extreme example. 
Say you have a really poopy ventricle with the ejection fraction of around 5%. You're not going to get a lot of power generated by that lump of muscle. So since the ventricle will not generate serious systolic pressures, it's not going to generate adequate flow across the aortic valve. Therefore, no surprises when we don't see a serious gradient across the aortic valve in this incredibly sick patient. On the other hand, low flow, low gradient aortic stenosis with a preserved ejection fraction is less intuitive. So follow me here. Close your eyes and imagine the normal ejection fraction patient, but a terrible, terrible stroke volume. This can occur in hearts with infiltrative diseases such as amyloidosis or even severely hypertrophied left ventricles. In these situations, the heart does not fill well, and so starting volume in the ventricle at the end diastole is incredibly low. Even if the ejection fraction is preserved or even supernormal, the actual amount of blood ejected through the ventricle, hashtag stroke volume, cannot be substantial given the small amount of volume starting off in the left ventricle prior to systole. Do not let that normal ejection fraction fool you into any sense of reassurance. This stroke volume is severely reduced, as are the transvalvular gradients, leading to what we call paradoxical low-flow, low-gradient aortic stenosis. If you want a high-yield parameter to remember, you can think of the number 35. That is, a stroke volume index to body surface area called stroke volume index, less than 35 ml per meter squared is a cutoff for low flow. Wow, Dan, that was amazing. What an incredible summary of a complicated topic that I still have to read about and reread about all the time. Guys, you might be wondering how all this fits into the staging system. Well, symptomatic severe aortic stenosis, or stage D, is further broken down into three subtypes. Number one, D1 is a prototypical high-flow, high-gradient severe aortic stenosis that meets the cutoffs 1, 4, and 40 with the aortic valve area less than 1, peak velocity greater than 4, and mean gradient greater than 40. That's the easy one. But what if, as Dan described, a carefully measured aortic valve area is less than 1 in the severe range, but the flow is just not high enough to get to a velocity of 4 or higher, or a mean gradient of 40 or greater? Well, if the EF is low, it is in the stage D2 category, but if the EF is preserved, the paradoxical low flow low gradient EFs, it is stage D3. Now, if your aortic valve area is truly small and the gradient is low, but your flow is normal across the LVOT with a stroke volume index above 35, then it gets hard to blame that valve for all the problems, as this is probably functionally more in the moderate aortic stenosis range. Okay, wow. Thank you, guys. That was awesome. I get it. And if you're considering low-flow, low-gradient aortic stenosis, it sounds like this would be the place where dobutamine echo would be the next step. Exactly. Dobutamine stress echo is especially useful in low-flow, low-gradient aortic stenosis with a low ejection fraction. With dobutamine, there's three possibilities that you can get. Again, for the visual learners, check out the episode schematic on CardioNerds.com if you want to follow along. But the three outcomes of a dobutamine stress test are, number one, gradients stay low and the valve area improves. This is what we call pseudostenosis, where the valve is actually not too stenotic, but it just doesn't open up well at baseline due to a weak ventricle. Two, gradients stay low and the valve area stays in the severe range. This implies poor contractile reserve and poor prognosis even with aortic valve replacement. And three, the dobutamine kicks that lazy ventricle in the butt. With the added contractility, the LV systolic pressure increases, the stroke volume increases, and the transvalvular gradients increase to a severe range. This implies true severe aortic stenosis. 
and are the patients who do best with valve replacement. Now, pseudo-AOS or pseudo-aortic stenosis can be super confusing, but think about it in this way. If you threw a probe on a patient during cardiac arrest who is not undergoing CPR, the aortic valve will barely be opening. Now, don't do that. Do CPR. <laughs> <laughs> Definitely do CPR. Just a reminder, <laughs> just a reminder yeah. folks. Don't take this as medical advice. This is just for education. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. However, this does not mean that they have true aortic stenosis. Obviously not. The reason why their valve isn't opening is because the valve only opens when the ventricle generates enough pressure to exceed the pressure in the aorta. With high-quality CPR, the aortic valve will start to open and blood ejects into the aorta to perfuse the brain and vital organs. Dobutamine is just like CPR in this case. If dobutamine increases contractility and the valve opens like a champ, then we call the aortic valve bluff and label this pseudo-aortic valve stenosis and turn our attention to focus on the treatment of the left ventricle. Wow, Dan, I love that imagery. It makes so much sense. But guys, wait. I'm still struck by how young she is. AS is usually a disease of the elderly because aortic stenosis typically is degenerative. So I wonder at such a young age what the mechanism of AS could be. If we step back, we can break fixed LVOT stenosis into three categories. Of course, this is different from the dynamic left ventricular outflow tract obstruction in hypertrophic cardiomyopathy. But going back to the fixed causes, we can think of supravalvular, subvalvular, and valvular. So number one, supravalvular stenosis is a rare congenital stenosis of the aorta above the valve. And the pro tip here is to suspect this in a young patient with an LVOT murmur, that is the AS murmur, with a thrill over the right carotid, but not the left, just due to the direction of a turbulent jet. Number two, subvalvular stenosis is a fixed obstruction uh, just below the valve. This can be found in up to 10% of patients with aortic stenosis. And I actually once had a patient with Schoen's complex, which is a rare congenital heart disease with three key features, coarctation of the aorta, subvalvular aortic stenosis, and mitral stenosis. Cool. So the Schoen complex. Yeah. That's crazy neat. Yeah, it's pretty cool. Thankfully, she was doing well. Now, in number three, valvular aortic stenosis. Now, this is the one that we most commonly think about. And with terms of the ideologies, it's helpful to break it down by age range. The most common is with ages above 70. And in this case, it's because of senile calcific degenerative disease. But if you are younger, in ages 40 to 60, we should start considering other processes like earlier degeneration from rheumatic heart disease and perhaps congenital bicuspid aortic valve, which tends to break down earlier. For yet younger patients below the age of 30, consider congenital unicuspid aortic valve. Now, calcification of a trileaflet aortic valve can still occur earlier with radiation exposure and with disorders of calcium metabolism like Paget's disease and ESRD. But since she developed moderate aortic stenosis by age 55, I would wonder about underlying bicuspid aortic valve or rheumatic heart disease that was not diagnosed. Because a bicuspid morphology can be difficult to identify on a service echo, especially when this calcification, just because the previous report didn't note it doesn't mean she doesn't have it. Now, you may say, hey, Ahmed, why are you making such a big deal about this distinction. AS is AS, and once it's severe, she needs an intervention, right? But you can't miss a diagnosis of bicuspid aortic valve for two primary reasons. Number one, bicuspid aortic valve is associated with thoracic aortic aneurysms, so you've got to make sure you don't miss that, and screening can be important later on. Number two, a bicuspid aortic valve can also be familial, so the diagnosis may have important implications for family members who would require screening as well. So with this in mind, we should be sure to pay attention to valve morphology on a repeat echo. Interesting. 
I was worried about her valve and ventricular function with her new heart failure symptoms, so I did order an echo. Let me see if she's had it yet. Oh, awesome. Okay, so I'm looking at the report. Her ejection fraction is preserved, but her aortic valve area is now 0.8 centimeters squared with a peak velocity of 4.4 meters per second, mean gradient 42 millimeters of mercury, and peak gradient 76 millimeters of mercury. So she meets all the cutoffs in 1, 4, 40, and 64. The report is pretty clear that her valve is tri-leaflet and not a bicuspid valve. So now she has clear-cut severe symptomatic aortic stenosis or stage D aortic stenosis. So I definitely need to pay attention to her physical exam next visit so I can pick up on all that fancy stuff you were talking about, Ahmed. (laughs) That's exactly right. But going back to her numbers, one caveat is that gradients and velocities may increase in high flow states and not actually reflect a truly severe aortic valve stenosis. Anemia is just one example, but Heather, help me remember some of the others. I would think of other things that might cause high output heart failure like thyrotoxicosis, sepsis, or other distributive states, AV fistulas, and Paget's disease. But she doesn't have any of these, so I do think she has true severe aortic stenosis. Unfortunately, she was lost to follow-up after her last echo. I wonder if I could have caught her earlier in her disease course. What a great observation. Because aortic stenosis tends to be progressive, surveillance is clutch. Generally, once you repeat a transthoracic echo every 6 to 12 months for asymptomatic severe aortic stenosis, every 1 to 2 years for moderate aortic stenosis, and every 3 to 5 years for mild aortic stenosis. I think it certainly had been time for another echo, and now with her onset of symptoms, a time for broadening our thoughts to include an ischemic evaluation. So now that she has severe symptomatic aortic stenosis, she has a clear indication for intervention. She has at least one of the three cardinal symptoms of aortic stenosis, which are dyspnea, angina, and syncope. I'm thinking of referring her for potential aortic valve replacement at this point because left untreated, these patients have increased mortality. Heather, that's exactly right. I'm so glad you're on this case. But surgery is a big deal. So let's think through when sending them to the OR for aortic valve replacement or TAVR is appropriate. Severe symptomatic aortic stenosis is easy. It's a class 1 indication for AVR. Low flow, low gradient aortic stenosis, but likely in the severe and symptomatic stage, carries a class 2A indication for AVR. But let's say we were getting those surveillance echoes that Dan pointed out and caught her in stage C, which is... Asymptomatic severe aortic stenosis. Boom! (laughs) (laughs) All right, all right. That's exactly right. So for asymptomatic severe aortic stenosis or stage C, there are five situations in which AVR should be considered. The best is stage C patients with low ejection fraction, right, stage C2, or those who are undergoing cardiac surgery for another reason, because you don't want to go open the chest and have to come back in later. The other situations where you could consider aortic valve replacement in patients with stage C AS include a very severe uh, stenosis with, say, a peak velocity above 5, or a rapidly progressing aortic stenosis as you're getting those surveillance echocardiograms, or those with exercise testing that shows a decreased blood pressure with exercise or reduced exercise tolerance. The latter is a very important point, right? Because aortic stenosis tends to develop and progress very slowly. Patients adapt to their slowly decreasing functional capacity and actually may just not notice their indolent functional decline. So for that patient, not being able to go up the stairs without stopping is just a new normal. This is where specific and nuanced questioning can make the difference. 
remind them what life was like a year or two ago, and enroll the assistance of their friends and family who might be more cognizant of a decline. Instead of saying a year ago, use temporal anchors like last Thanksgiving to help them contextualize. One patient with quote-unquote asymptomatic severe aortic stenosis told me he was fine and still plays golf. And I thought to myself, all right, this guy's enjoying life more than I was. He's fine. But when I asked him how many holes he plays now compared to last summer, he realized that he now only does nine before he feels tired. But before, he used to be able to do 18. I love that so much. What a good trick. I'm going to ask all my patients what they were doing last Thanksgiving. Well, well, you may not want to know what they were eating last Thanksgiving. That's true. I wouldn't want to share that for me either, though. (laughs) Gravy, gravy, (laughs) gravy, baby. Okay, so it's clear as day that my patient needs aortic valve replacement to live longer and to live better. But how do we go about deciding between surgical replacement or SAVR versus transcatheter aortic valve replacement or TAVR? I love this discussion about TAVR versus SAVR. We could literally talk about this for hours. Whoa there, Dan. I love the enthusiasm, but Heather's a busy clinician. (laughs) I want to hear it. Maybe not for hours, though. (laughs) All right. All right, Dan. Fire away. (laughs) Okay. Okay. You let the beast out of the barn. So the story... The story of TAVR is one of the most exciting in modern cardiology. Since the oh, first I love in human this one. Oh, it's a great story. <laughs> all right, all right. Since the first in human procedure performed in 2002 by Dr. Elaine Crevier, we have had numerous groundbreaking trials and have drastically changed how we manage patients with aortic stenosis. It is worth looking up the partner and core valve trials, but for the sake of time, I will say that TAVR first started as an alternate to SAVR for extreme risk patients who had no other options. But over time, this improved technology, safer technique, and increased operator experience, the goals have moved to include TAVR as a good option for high and intermediate risk patients. And even more recently, TAVR has been approved for low risk patients. Guys, this is exactly why I love cardiology. This is such a rapidly changing and exciting field. And the future may be even broader, especially with improvements in TAVR technology making it more effective and safe. There are actually our ongoing studies to look at. One, early TAVR in asymptomatic severe aortic stenosis not meeting the current AVR criteria. And two, in patients with moderate aortic stenosis, because we now know that even moderate AS carries a poor prognosis. That sounds amazing. Why not send every patient for a TAVR? I know, right? No, but in all honesty, remember that TAVR is a complex procedure with inherent risks, including vascular complications, paravalvular leak, aortic rupture, stroke, and injury to the conduction system that might warrant a permanent pacemaker. Patient selection and procedural planning are thus paramount. The final decision will depend, in part, on patient-specific risks as measured by validated scores like the STS score and Euroscore, as well as comorbidities and measures of frailty. In fact, not every path should lead to an intervention. Expected survival less than one year is a contraindication to TAVR or SAVR, and goals of care should dictate how you discuss the treatment options. Another important factor is procedural impediments. For example, the patient may not have good transfemoral access for TF-TAVR, or they may have a porcelain-slash-calcified aorta that prevents cross-clamping for surgery. But let's not forget, it's a big decision, and patient preference is also an important consideration. Because the decision-making is so complex, and procedures so advanced, teamwork is key. So folks, don't do this at home without an integrated heart team. Oh, definitely not. Good. <laughs> That's good advice. <laughs> that, that, folks, you could take to the bank. Okay, guys, but before we can get that far, we have to first decide what type of valve, mechanical versus bioprosthetic or a tissue valve. So mechanical valves last longer and are better for younger patients, but really necessitates anticoagulation with warfarin 
whereas bioprosthetic valves don't need anticoagulation, but you can get prosthetic valve dysfunction earlier, like within 10 to 20 years. Our patient is quite young, so at the age of 57, almost certainly should have a mechanic aortic valve replacement. So surgery would probably be the way to go for her, especially since she doesn't have any contraindications to anticoagulation, at least not that we've heard of. Before surgery, I suggest a referral for coronary angiography to assess her coronary tree. One, because her symptoms can still be anginal, and two, because finding coronary artery disease will inform the surgeon to also do coronary bypass at the time of aortic valve replacement. Amazing. So glad I called you guys. This was so helpful. So I'm going to refer her to surgery. Sounds like a great plan, Heather. I think she'll do quite well. But remember that post-AVR care will also be very important moving forward when she comes back to you. As with any prosthetic valve, she will need prophylaxis for infective endocarditis with procedures. And since she will have a mechanical valve in the aortic position, she will also need warfarin, not NOAX, but warfarin with a goal INR of 2.5. And importantly, Moving forward, she will need aggressive risk factor modification given her numerous comorbidities. Wow, guys, thanks so much. This has really been an awesome discussion. I've learned so much and I feel so much more prepared to care for patients with aortic stenosis. So to recap our key points, there are five important pillars in the management of aortic stenosis. Number one, evaluation. We need to identify that there is aortic stenosis and determine the stage, keeping in mind the nuances of low-flow, low-gradient aortic stenosis and pseudoaortic stenosis. Number two, surveillance. For those who do not immediately need intervention, how frequently should we be getting echoes? Number three, intervention. Engaging a patient-centered heart team to determine the best strategy, such as SAVR versus TAVR, or for some patients, a palliative approach. Number four, periprocedure management. Pre-op procedure planning and management of immediate complications of any procedure. And number five, longitudinal follow-up. Long-term management, such as anticoagulation for mechanical valves and endocarditis prophylaxis, are really important. Wow, what a killer summary. I think we ought to like rename the segment Five Points of Maximal Impulse. (laughs) (laughs) Dan, I love it. That's so nerdy. Hashtag PMI. Hashtag PMI. That brings us to the end of our show, so it's time to make like an S2 and split. You can follow us on Twitter at CardioNerds. Don't forget to check the amazing illustration that Kareen prepared for y'all at www.cardionerds.com. If you enjoyed the show, be a nerd and spread the word. Spread the word.